I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. That's Not Canon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Mike Brush. Mike, welcome to Carefree Highway Revisited. Yeah, thanks for having me. How did you get into Gordon Lightfoot's music originally? So this is kind of funny. I uh, So I'm 29, and I started playing guitar when I was about eight, and uh, part of it was I was, my dad had an old guitar in the closet, and so you know, I stumbled upon that and then we started to play again and I learned to play for the first time together. And uh, one of the songs we used to play together and he would sing over was Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Although um, for years, I never had even actually heard the actual studio recording. So I think I was aware that Gordon Lightfoot had written and performed the song, but it took me years to catch up and come back around and actually hear that version. Honestly, I didn't really get into his music. I'm still kind of in the path of discovery with it until the pandemic, actually. Well, yeah, and the pandemic offset a whole lot of things. What do you like about Lightfoot's music generally? He has a great ear for melody. And also in this song, he's just got his imagery is so great, you know, the way he works with words. A lot of other songwriters, they have limits on melody as they get older. But, you know, Mm -hmm. he's never lost his gift for that. Have you seen Lightfoot live in concert? No. So that's what I was starting to say. I actually started to get into his music over the pandemic. So I haven't had an opportunity to see him live. I was listening to a couple of the other episodes that a lot of the guests have seen him, but I'm kind of in a different stage of fandom around him. So I've gotten pretty well acquainted with a few albums here, you know, but I haven't had a chance to see him live yet, unfortunately. Well, I've only seen him once. And so when I have other guests on who've seen him, you know, 50, 70, 100 times, I'm really in awe of their dedication. So I I feel you on that. Well, today we're talking about Circle of Steel from the Sundown album in 1974. And I'm very glad that you wanted to talk about this one, because to me, it has a lot of really cinematic qualities. It starts off by, I think I'm in Renaissance England, you know, or the Baroque period with the recorder. And then we're suddenly brought into this Dickensian sort of 19th century city, sort of Christmas Carol kind of thing. So it feels like it's been written almost in two halves, although the theme is obviously the same in the whole song. What do you like about it? You know, we've kind of touched on a couple of things, but uh, I think it's a very evocative song because I found it over the pandemic. I got into the habit, you know, I work from home and I would go on walks midday, you know, during my break from work. So as I would walk, I would listen to it. So the whole Sundown album kind of became this like sunny weather music to me. 
but yeah, I, I love the imagery in it. I love that melody. Like you said, Dickensian is such a great word. It sounds like, you know, an old time Christmas carol, but then you have this kind of modern imagery. You have the lights from the tenement building look so beautiful the way he's telling it, but then he kind of zooms in and you get the kind of like almost social realist tale, you know? Yeah, that's a neat way of saying it. I mean, the idea of social realism and harsh realism at that and kind of an unfinished story. We'll talk about that, you know, as we go on. Now, you said that, you know, when the pandemic hit, this album was kind of your companion when you'd go for walks when you were working from home. Is there a particular event that you associate with this song in your life or is it just the whole album was your accompaniment as you were out on walks. Is there anything about Circle of Steel or an anecdote about that song? I, I would say just the whole album in particular, but it was it was an album where it would beginning to end. I could just replay it again, you know, and I went through some personal stuff over the pandemic because, you know, everybody kind of has their own story. I won't get into that, all that, but, you know, I definitely think that it was cathartic. Like, I think the whole album was particularly cathartic, but this is the song that Every time, that was the one that would stick out in my memory particularly. Okay, I gotcha. What's the best setting for you to listen to this song? Is it still going on walks or would it be sitting someplace? Would it be driving? What would be the setting for you? I think it could be adapted to any setting, you know, because I found it during sunny weather, but it's really like like we've been saying, it's a, it's a Christmas song. The themes are about Christmas. It's about cold, harsh weather. I think it's a really it's a really a song for like any time of the year. For me personally, I associate movement with it. So it's kind of like, you know, walking or I think it's a great driving song. I think the whole album is a great driving album. Yeah. For me, I would hear him in sort of a smoky coffee house at night playing this, even if there were no other instruments, if it was just him and guitar, not even bass. It, that's the imagery that I have when I listen to this if I'm picturing him playing mm -hmm. it, you know, if I'm, you know, getting into the lyrics, then I've kind of already said, we've already kind of said where mm -hmm. we would see that. And I don't have an anecdote about the song in particular, except that that's the image that I see of Lightfoot performing it. Let's talk about the genesis of the song. Do you know anything about how the song got written? I wasn't able to find anything particular on how it was created. Do you have any knowledge of that? Uh, no, I actually don't. Um, and I was, I was interested to see that he said that he hadn't performed it many times in concert. I'm sure you were going to touch on that, but that's, that's surprising to me because it seems like it would have become a staple. But Yeah, and he's never gone on record about how it got written, although if I were ever to interview him, I think I would want to know that. And mm -hmm. it's possible nobody's ever asked him, but there's not a whole lot on how it Got yeah, me. I couldn't. I just doing a little bit of preliminary research. I, yeah, I, I couldn't come up with anything really. It's just okay. like different people's interpretations and stuff. Well, let's dive into it now. Let's talk about the lyrics. Rows of lights in a circle of steel where you place your bets on a great big wheel. And that makes it sound like life is random. I mean, the very first two lines, he's already talking about gambling, about games of chance, something where you have no control over the outcome. We'll be right back to our conversation with Mike Brush about Circle of Steel. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? 
If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. Like there's no design to it. You don't know what is going to happen. It's the roulette wheel or the wheel of fortune, not the TV show, but the whole yeah. metaphor of the, sure. the fortune. And then steel is hard. It's cold. It's immutable. It doesn't break easily. We hear about stealing yourself, meaning you kind of you know yeah. suck in your gut and you say, I'm going to take the hill. Do you feel like he's kind of communicating fatalism or resignation here? I definitely think that's in there. I think there's a lot of layers to it. Like just occurred to me today, kind of, you know, meditating on the song in preparation for this, you know, like the circle of steel was like the image itself. Cause for so long when I would listen to this, it was like, what's the circle of steel? But it's like that image of the tenement building from afar, you know, like kind of bird's eye view down. But yeah, no, I definitely think that's communicated in there what you picked out. I think it's uh, a very compassionate song in that way. You know, it's a little window into these people's lives, but I think it's very like humanistic. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That would be even more cinematic where you have the bird's eye view of this great big city. And most cities, I guess, are circular to some degree or another, maybe not perfect circles, you know, and then to have it, the camera sort of slowly descend as the image of the roulette wheel fades out. Just talking like we're making a music video here. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's all there. Yeah, no, I mean, the imagery is just so rich here, you know? Yeah, totally. High windows flickering down through the snow. The windows are way above the street because the the light is flickering down. And that implies maybe that that's where the wealthy are living or maybe that's where the poorest are living. Because, you know, if you can afford to live on the ground floor, that means you don't have to go up and down stairs. But Mm -hmm. I know in New York City, I mean, they talk about you have a six floor cold water walk up, meaning that you have to go up to all these stairs. And maybe it's the all that you can afford. You can't afford, you know, a place that would be more easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Through the snow, it's winter. So he's setting the scene for us already. And in that sense, it's beautiful narration that he's, you know, just setting the scene mm-hmm. already for us. A time you know, and it feels like he's saying, you know what time of year this is. We all have experienced the holiday season. We've all experienced the winter. Even if we haven't experienced snow, we all know what cold weather is like. I had trouble with that particular part of the words, you know, a time you know. And I thought, is this just poetic license? But it seems like he's actually saying, you know what I'm talking about. There's no mystery here. Yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely some universality here. And, and another thing I was thinking of is just how like bittersweet the song is because the melody is so pretty and, um, you know, the imagery is so pretty. And then he's like being balanced out with these scenes from uh, this kind of down and out family situation. You said it, it's really nice, like narrative economy there. He gets us right into it. And it's, it's he's kind of flipping the switch on us, you know. Sights and sounds of the people going around. Everybody's in step with the season. Okay, it's a city. There's lots of people there. People going around. There's that idea of the circle mm-hmm. again. Everybody knows what time of year it is, and they're behaving accordingly, and they're probably dressed accordingly. I mean, if it's the mm-hmm. snow going on, you know that people are going to be bundled up, mm-hmm. if they can possibly be. 
A child is born to a welfare case where the rats run around like they own the place. Okay, so the welfare case is this very impersonal way of referring to the mother. This is not a hospital. This is no place that's run by any institution because if it was, then rats wouldn't be anywhere near it. And so this is not a good place for children. I mean, you mentioned it, it's a rundown tenement. I almost think of it as the remains of a rundown tenement after it's mm-hmm. been abandoned. Yeah. You know, make it even more Dickensian, right? Yeah. The room is chilly. The building is old. Okay. Maybe she's squatting in this place. She has really no place else to go. And this mm-hmm. is just someplace where if she knows that for a while, at least she won't be kicked out. That's how it goes. And again, we come back to this whole idea of fatalism. He feels kind of helpless. Maybe he's just acknowledging that the way things are. You could kind of see this, that he's being a little callous, just saying, well, you know, this is just the way it is. Some things are insoluble. Did you take it that way, Mike? Yeah. I mean, also, I think it's a nice transition phrase into the next kind of, I guess, scene, for lack of a better word, in the song. But yeah, I I think I could see that, you know, kind of like a resignation there, a little, you know, helplessness. Yeah. Yeah. Not indifference, because if he was indifferent, he wouldn't be writing about this at all. But Mm -hmm. it's this cliche how that's how it goes. But it fits in really unhappily, but it fits in perfectly with all Mm -hmm. of this. The doctor's found on his welfare round and he comes and he leaves on the double And I get this impression that this is a guy who doesn't want to be there. Mm. It's part of his job. Maybe he's just there because he absolutely has to be. Check on this woman, make sure that the kid is alive. And then he moves on for whatever reason, either because he just wants to get out of there or because he has other places to be. But in any case, he doesn't stay very long, which means he doesn't have a chance to communicate a whole lot of compassion if he has only to communicate in the first place. Then the next verse, okay, we get the chimes and the bells deck the halls was the song they played in the flat next door where they shout all day and i found out later lightfoot actually played the bells and the chimes on this oh wow which i thought was kind of cool yeah so the neighbors aren't having a much better time of it Mm. do you get the impression that they are having a drunken celebration or do you think they're better off than the woman and the kid No, I mean, I think it's just another echo of that, you know, that juxtaposition of the warmth of the holiday season, you know, symbolized through the deck, the halls being played. And then, you know, you have that conflict right next to it, you know, and that's kind of the the Christmas setting that he's presenting here, you know. We'll be right back to our conversation with Mike Brush about Circle of Steel. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Do you like classic albums? Technically, like the you know the twentieth century albums, um, such as like Beatles, Led Zeppelin, <laughs> Rolling Stones. I've only had Beatle episodes so far. However, I'll be doing more. But welcome to my show, or rather, hey, welcome to check out my show. <laughs> um, all those years ago, a classic album podcast with the dipping sauce. Um, as you can see, the here, George Harrison reference. Um, I review classic albums, um, not of those the likes of Beethoven, the likes of the Beatles and Rolling Stones, and like I mentioned earlier, 
or what have you. <laughs> um, so yeah, check it out. It's every Monday. Um, I do albums, conspiracies, songs, all that jazz. So just check it out. All those years ago, a classic album podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Well, and if we hadn't figured out that it was the Christmas season, okay, deck the halls, okay, yeah, that's what nice other time would you <laughs> sing that song? You know, yeah. it would have to be during mm-hmm. Christmas. The kid isn't going to be able to sleep if people are shouting all day. And mm-hmm. the mom is not going to be able to do that either. And we don't know whether she goes in to join the people in the flat next door or whether she's there by herself, but she tips her gin bottle back till it's gone. Maybe that's her only way of getting to sleep. You know, it's clear that she's an alcoholic because you're a social drinker. You're not going to drink straight out of the bottle. Yeah, Um, especially gin. (laughs) Especially gin. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And maybe this is the only thing that relieves the pressure of being a mother to this really helpless child. So we don't know exactly where she is, but we know that she's drinking. The child is strong. I wonder, this is kind of an interjection because... I guess the child would have to be strong to live in these conditions. Or is that kind of an insight into her own thinking? You know, he's fine. He'll deal with it. I'm just going to, you know, drink myself to sleep. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting take. Yeah, no, I I had thought of it kind of almost like as an omniscient phrase, you know, like him as the narrator offering that up, but that's a cool way to read it too, that, you know, it's the dozing off thought of the mom. Well, I can't imagine what other things she would have to justify her own behavior. Yeah, you know, yeah. Because true. you know that her conscience is getting after her for this, but she's hoping yeah, to sure. drown her conscience in a river of gin. A week a day, they will take it away, for they know about all her bad habits. Now, I'm not sure if this is a reference to the idea that the kid someday is going to be taken away from the mother, or whether or not okay, it's a week until they come and take him. It's five days until they come. Oh, yeah. It's three years. So what do you think? Mm-hmm. Is this a countdown or is she just saying, I know that someday the kid is going to be taken away? I, I kind of took it as um, at some point, you know, whatever kind of welfare office or uh, social services, yeah, would would take the kid fairly soon. But yeah, I guess, I guess there isn't like too much immediacy because it mentions like the welfare doctor kind of coming in and out. I guess there isn't too much of a timely nature to that statement. But yeah, you kind of get the feeling that it's happening sooner than later, just based off the, you know, everything stacking together. Well, you raise a good point. I mean, if the welfare doctor doesn't really care about this, why would the welfare agency really care Mm -hmm. about this? So it's not like, okay, we're going to go right away and take the kid, but they know that it's, she knows it's kind of inevitable, you know, that it is going to happen. Christmas dawns and the snow lets up and the sun hits the handle of her heirloom cup. And I always wonder if that's the only thing she has left to call her own, you know, that an heirloom cup, something maybe she got from her mother. This is the only possession that she has. Yeah. And um, it's, a be- it's a beautiful piece of imagery, too, because it's you, you have that positive association of the sun and the heirloom cup. But then, you know, she's waking up probably hungover and she's destitute and maybe that's one of very few possessions you know so it's a nice juxtaposition again by by lightfoot there yeah she hides her face in her hands for a while and that may be you know she's rubbing her eyes trying to get over the hangover yeah um, or she's crying or she's just exhausted and you know maybe i'm gonna hide for a couple of minutes just to save myself from having to face the world says look here child 
Now, I don't know if the kid is going to understand this, if the kid is really yeah. a newborn. Okay. Yeah, we don't uh, know how old. Yeah. No, you don't really know how old, but you know, she's saying to the kid, maybe just to get it off her chest. Your father's pride was his means to provide, and he served in three years for that reason. And I think of the Jean Valjean character from Les Miserables, and he steals a loaf of bread to feed his sister's family, and he gets yeah. sent to prison for five years and then tacked mm -hmm. on because I think he tried to escape. So we have an explanation now of what's happened. Okay, this is not without cause, but we don't see what happens to the mom or the kid. It's just we're led back into the first verse, but we never see the kid actually taken away. We don't know what happens to the woman. Did you kind of wonder when you listen to this, just thinking, come on, finish the story, finish the story? Or were you okay with, you know, kind of zooming away and letting the listener make up their own mind? And this is actually my favorite line in the song. And it's because, like, again, I think he's using such great narrative economy with his songwriting and, and, the line says so much, but also doesn't judge the character. And, you know, sure, it's coming from, I guess, the mother's point of view. But I just think that's such a powerful two lines right there. Not looking down on him for getting put away or whatever. And it, it, it makes you kind of assume that there aren't many other opportunities there for the, the father to provide or the mother to provide, you know. It's, and based on the rest of what we're getting from the song, it sounds like they're in pretty low socioeconomic you know, situation, you know? Yeah. It's Not just preferable. one of those things where, you know, this isn't going to end well. And so I was a little bothered by that. And then I think to myself, okay, well, the movie is ending, you know, where you pretty much know that yeah. this is not going to end well. This is film noir, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, But there's no definitive conclusion of the whole thing. And then it goes back into the first verse. We'll be right back to our conversation with Mike Brush about Circle of Steel. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. So let's talk a little bit about the music. We talked about his gift for melody. Yeah. What to you is your favorite musical aspect of the song other than the melody line itself? I think like you said, like the recorder, wait, it's a recorder, not a flute, right? It's it's a recorder, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think I, think I like the recorder because it's something that like, they managed to use that instrumentation without it drawing too much attention to itself. Like it sounds organic to the, the melody and the, you know, the imagery of the song. Um, I think that's probably my favorite uh, musical touch there. You're talking my language because that's exactly <laughs> the part that I loved the most. The English horn in the last full verse is also kind of nice because mm -hmm. it's very understated, but the recorder is the thing that really got me. Because you don't hear it in a lot of modern music, 
and if you do hear it, it's mostly in the folk tradition. Yeah. So it fits into Lightfoot's domain, if you will, the singer-songwriter and the folk music sure. stuff. Lightfoot played the six-string acoustic guitar. I don't hear a 12-string in this. He sang the vocals, both the lead and the backing. I said that he played the chimes and the bells himself, mm -hmm. which shows me that he has a, a great gift for rhythm in addition to yeah. everything else that we've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Red Shea played acoustic and classical guitars. Terry Clements also played on the album. Rick Haynes played the bass. And then Jack Zaza was the one who played the woodwind instruments. He played the English okay. horn and he played the recorder. He's going to show up on the Endless Wire album as well. Okay. And so we may hear about that in some future episode. Now, you mentioned that this song has only been played eight times in concert. Uh, once in 1973, once in 1979, twice in 2012, four times in 2013, and not since then. And I'm wondering, why do you think he plays it so seldom? Because it's certainly not hard to recreate. Even if you yeah. didn't have the English horn, the recorder, the chimes, you don't really need all of that. So why yeah, I mean, you could do it solo it? guitar. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that sometimes when people are writing albums, you know, certain songs are kind of become afterthoughts or whatever. And I think it's also just a testament to how many great songs he has. I guess if this song just isn't a staple, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I was really surprised to see that. It really kind of boggles my mind, but I guess I, I, I guess maybe it was just like a, maybe a song he wrote quickly or something, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's whetting my appetite to find out more about the song. And I don't know how I'm going to investigate that, but um, <laughs> you know, now I'm really curious you know, yeah. about that. He did not play it when I saw him in concert and he has not played it on the current okay. tour as far as I know. So it may be another one where there are just so many good songs. You can only do so many in a two hour concert. Sure, yeah. The song was not released as a single, which I completely understand because it's not top 40 material. Yeah, I know. But the album did go to number one in Canada, number one in the US, and 13 in Australia. It didn't chart in the UK. The song has been re-recorded by five different artists, okay? And they are J.P. Cormier, The Jigsaw Scene, The Lord Franklin Group, Perry Novak and Bob Volkman, and White Knight Instrumental. And I have to say that I have not heard <laughs> yeah, by any heard of it. those acts, and yeah, I have I, never heard of those acts. I haven't acts. either. Yeah, I haven't so, either, yeah. Okay. Um, and it's a shame, because this is such yeah. a beautiful song, you would think yeah. someone else would have recorded it. Yeah, I agree. So you've never heard any of the cover versions either? No, I've, I've, I've actually never even heard of any of those groups, I don't think. Volkman looks kind of familiar, but I, I can't place it. That segues into our next question, okay? Who would you like to hear do this? I have my own thoughts, but if you could pick somebody to do Circle of Steel with or without all of the different instrumentation that Gordon did, who would it be? It's hard for me to imagine another man singing it, so I, I, I would like this melody with a with a woman's voice would be very interesting. Like I weirdly, I think Amy Mann could do like a really interesting version of it. I don't know why that comes to mind, but um, I just think her voice with this melody, not that it's really a melody similar to her stuff necessarily, but I just think that she could really do something cool with this. That's a great idea. You know, I'm going to have to sit with that because I, I kind of like the idea of hearing Amy Mann do that. I thought of Tracy Chapman. I don't know if her voice would go that high. She'd have to transpose that. 
Joan Baez, if she was still doing music, I think she's retired from that. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know she was retired, but yeah, she would be a great voice for it. She'd sure. be a great voice for it because I think she's covered other of Gordon's songs and I think mm-hmm. they know each other. There's an American folk singer named Fred Small that is not known for doing other people's music, but I would love to hear him do it also. Is he a current artist, Fred Small? Uh, no, he is now a Unitarian minister. Uh, okay. He did most of his work in the 80s and 90s, but I would oh, love to have him out. come out of retirement just to do that. Yeah. So if you could have a say over Lightfoot's set list and he could pick his opening song at his next concert, and let's say you had tickets front row center, what song would you want him to start the show with? Uh, gosh, um, I'm trying to think what the... Um song was called that i was i was listening to this morning and i I was really thinking uh i think uh yeah watchman's gone is another one i mean i know it's not the same album but that one is just like i don't know maybe not the best opener but it's very upbeat and it's like it's kind of a ripper for um a folk song you know all right watchman's gone okay we'll put that down mike now we're gonna find out a little bit more about you first of all i wanted to know where people can find you online and then second i'd like you to talk about your band because you are a working musician and i want to promote other working musicians as much as i can so where can we find you online and then where can we find your band and its music the band um social media platforms like we're we're on instagram we're on facebook uh we're called rest etiquette we're on bandcamp you can download uh all our music for free uh restetiquette.bandcamp.com but yeah we're on we're on all those platforms and um be happy to hear from any listeners or anything right on okay rest etiquette is that the name of the group yep now one of the descriptions i've seen of the band says that it's uh punk folk is that uh, still an accurate one and if it is can you say a little bit more about that yeah so actually uh it started as a uh kind of a singer songwriter project and um you know i had started it just with you know all this newfound time over the pandemic you know as the ball kept rolling you know i got some friends involved and uh you know we kind of turned into a band over the course of it so i would say half of the album that we have out right now grow mold is more like acoustic arrangements and then half are still acoustic, but a little bit louder. Um, but yeah, I would say like a lot of our influences are like Meat Puppets, Gun Club, you know, um, you know, Nick Cave stuff, you know, Lightfoot is one, Leonard Cohen, you know, all that stuff, but also like louder music, you know, like Joy Division. I mean, it, it kind of runs the gamut, but yeah, it's kind of rootsy, post-punk type stuff, I guess. So everybody check that out when you get a chance. Mike Rush, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you about this song, and I hope you can come back on the show soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com and our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. This, by the way, is episode number 25 of Carefree Highway Revisited, which is kind of a milestone. So for all of you that have listened and appeared on the show, you make this possible. You make this tribute to Lightfoot and his music a thing. So thank you very much, and we hope you keep listening. 
The next episode of the show will be coming out on or about the third week of May. And as soon as I know who the guest and who will, what song we'll be talking about, I will let you all know. So until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. Rows of lights in a circle of steel Where you place your bets on a great big wheel High windows flickering down through the snow A time you know Sights and sounds of the people going round Everybody's instead with a season 